Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is written constitutions. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Lorna Drummond, Jim Gallagher, and from across the Atlantic, Don Herzog. Lorna Drummond QC is Sheriff in Tayside Central and Fife, and Justice of Appeal in the Court of Appeal in the territories of St Helena, Ascension and Tristan Tacuna. Jim Gallagher is a former civil servant who headed the Scottish Justice Department. He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the Cabinet Office and the Number 10 Policy Unit under Gordon Brown. Don Herzog is a specialist in political and legal theory and in constitutional interpretation. He is Edson R. Sunderland, Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, and his recent books include Sovereignty, RIP, and A Little Book of Political Mistakes. So starting off with you, Don, what do we mean by a written constitution? How various in nature and in content are written constitutions? Well, so the classic case, of course, is uh, a document is framed, it is presented ordinarily to a ratification process as the Constitution, and all actors, the American one is like this, all actors unambiguously understand that's it, right? That's the Constitution. There are, of course, systems, yours is arguably one, where people who think, no, we've got something like a written Constitution, then have to figure out, like, Magna Carta, is it in, is it out? What other kind of fundamental legal statements are in or out? And then there are other systems, at least on the on the ordinary story, where one would be embarrassed if asked, can you please point to the Constitution, right, or lay it on the table or read it from start to finish? One wouldn't know quite what to say. It's not clear to me that there's a lot legally at stake in that, but I suppose that's the sort of thing one means. There's no dispute in the United States about the text of the Constitution. Every single competent actor reads it from start to finish exactly the same way. So in that sense, one might distinguish between a single composed constitution, a codified constitution, a partly written constitution, and a completely unwritten constitution. I should perhaps add there was once an actual debate in this country. It was the 27th Amendment, and the debate was, was it legally valid? Was it part of the Constitution? Because its ratification process stretched for many decades from the point at which the first state said yes to enough states finally said yes. But in short order, everybody agreed, yes, that is now part of the Constitution. Lorna, would you like to pick up on this and taking it from a judicial or other point of view about the meaning of what is peculiarly written about a written constitution? I think for a written constitution, people, certainly in the UK, would generally understand that that would be some sort of document, a written uh, material, which would set out fundamental principles or, or precedents or norms that somehow constitute how the country is governed. That could be, it could be all all sorts of different forms and it could be a codification, it it might be something quite abstract, or it could be something that is fairly detailed. And, uh, you know, I think we would look to the US as not only one of the oldest constitutions that we have in the world, but also one of the most abstract constitutions 
in the sense that it sets out sort of fairly broad uh, fundamental rights and principles about the, the way that the United States is governed. Whereas there are other written constitutions throughout the world that are pretty detailed, very, very long, and probably go a bit more towards being a, an attempt at codifying the laws more completely. So there are within written constitutions, I think, so many different ways of actually achieving some sort of uh, norms written down. Um, but of course, there are many other societies, and the UK is one, where we don't have a, a written constitution in that sense. And what we have is more akin to an unwritten constitution, or at least an unwritten constitution with some parts that might be described as written. This notion that the United Kingdom has a partly written constitution, though not a codified one, is one that seems to be getting more publicity, more attention at the moment. But it always strikes me as a, a strange one in that were there a set of documents which form that partially written document, documented constitution, surely someone would put them in a book, uh, not least because they could make quite a lot of money out of selling copies of it. And it strikes me that the problem is that there is no definition of which documents are constitutional or which are not. There are few which are probably undoubted, but the instance that Don mentioned of Magna Carta exemplifies the problems of it, in that whenever it is treated as a constitutional document in constitutional debate, people talk about 1215. Those wanting to be more specialised talk about 1225, which is the one that came onto the statute book. Yet the fact that it is on the statute book surely is not relevant because most of it is, most of the provisions have been annulled in statutory terms. So this idea that there's some documents that in some sense coalesce as a written constitution falls apart rather. And I think one could see that again when looking at the sort of constitutional case that was in the Supreme Court last year, the ability to appeal to a document was almost zero. Is that fair enough, Lorna, or is, am I exaggerating the unwrittenness or the lack of clarity as to what a constitutional document is? Yeah, and I, I think there are some obvious examples of documents that uh, I think could be properly described as constitutional documents within the UK. And I'm thinking about the Acts of Parliament that regulate the devolution settlements yeah. you know, for Wales and, and Scotland, for example, and constitutional reform acts, those sorts of bits of legislation that clearly set out arrangements between the various arms of government, judiciary, the executive and parliament. But I, I agree. I mean, there is so much of the constitution in the UK that's unwritten, conventions obviously being one of them, and they are surrounded by ambiguity, I think, and certainly not that well understood by the public. Don, as someone who lives supposedly under and certainly with a written constitution, what are seen as the main advantages of having a written constitution, be it of any type, albeit of the general and fairly abstract type that you've outlined and Lorna has talked about? It's hard for me to take this entirely seriously myself. I think there's not much there there. But what people will say is, well, in an ordinary legal argument where there's a constitutional issue, you know where to begin. You know what the authoritative source is. You know what you're arguing about. The worry is the Constitution is perfectly clear on some relatively trivial questions. For instance, 
How old do you need to be to run for president or to be seated as president of the United States? And the answer is 35 years old. And we don't bicker about that because that's what the Constitution says. And everybody says, fine. The Constitution also says Congress shall not abridge the freedom of speech. We can all agree that that text matters, but it's I am hard pressed to believe that that will settle anything. So, for instance, we now say that even though the text says Congress, the guarantee applies against the state governments. Why? Well, it was incorporated, we say, at the ratification of the 14th Amendment in the Due Process Clause. It took the court six decades, the Supreme Court, six decades to notice that that was the legal upshot of the 14th Amendment. And worse yet, if you ask, well, then why is the president bound by the First Amendment, which everybody thinks he is? There's no answer in the text of the Constitution. It's just a norm that we think he ought to be. So again, what people will say matters about having a written text is that it frames debate, it guides debate, it structures the debate, but in provision after provision, what we actually do with the written text is just spin out common law. And the precedents of the Supreme Court become much more important than anything in the text. So in a sense, what you're saying is that there may be a document, but it is in, I suppose, in an English common law context, like a statute of the late 13th century, where what really matters is the common law of applying it. And in your case, you're saying it's the common law of the United States, of the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes, that sounds exactly right to me. You mentioned in that when you were talking then that the provision had been incorporated. Could you could you explain what that means? Yeah, so the Bill of Rights, which I suppose is our focus, uh, rattles off things ordinarily that Congress cannot do. So we have the federal government, the national government of the United States, and it imposes a bar on what Congress can legislate. That has nothing to do on its textual face with anything a state government might or might not be able to do. And so the question is, well, could the state, can a state pass a law abridging your freedom of speech, right? And the answer now is no, that became the legally effective answer in the 1920s, right? And when the court adopted that rule in the 1920s, they pointed back to the ratification of the 14th Amendment just after the Civil War in the 1860s and said the language there that says states have to respect the due process of law opened up applying selectively, they never did it across the board, various amendments of the 10 that comprise the Bill of Rights, applying them against the states. And that's what we call incorporation against the states. It seems to me you can stare at the text all day long. Doesn't it doesn't do that? It doesn't settle the question. But courts did it, right? The Supreme Court did it. I'm glad they did it. It's fine that they did it. But it looks to me like a classic example of ambitious common lawmaking. Thank you. That's very clear. So, Jim, Don has been talking about the advantages and limits of advantages of the type of written constitution that the US has, what would you see more generally as the possible advantages of a written constitution? The potential advantages of a, of a written, a fully written or codified constitution are on the face of it at least certainty, because you know where to go and you know what the text says. 
so that on an issue such as, for example, when in the UK can the government prorogue Parliament or not prorogue it, there is an authority to text which will, one hopes, tell you the answer. So that's certainly a potential advantage. Or if you look at what you might describe as the written constitution here in the UK of the Scottish Parliament, or for that matter, the Welsh uh, Assembly or the Northern Ireland Assembly, you know exactly what it can and can't do, because it is all written down in a piece of legislation, parliamentary legislation from Westminster, which nevertheless does have constitutional status. So clarity is the big argument, clarity and certainty. But of course, uh, there is always a limit to certainty, and there's certainly quite often a limit to clarity. Lorna, would you like to add anything? Yeah, just agreeing with Jim that um, seems to me that the greatest advantages are clarity, certainty. Also, I think transparency, that there is something that's uh, identifiable easily and one can put one's hands on it, read it, and it's intelligible and you know, under, understood by people making it accessible to the public. So I think these are all important points, but I think on the on the main topic of certainty and clarity, I'm not actually all that convinced that a written document, a written, even if it was a codification, would be able to provide a huge amount of certainty and clarity. I mean, taking the example that Jane gave, gave rather of proroguing Parliament, I'm not sure if we had a, a written constitution that we would have avoided the litigation that we saw last year. And essentially, the question there was whether the Prime Minister's advice to the Queen was justiciable. I don't really think that would have been answered by a written constitution. I think inevitably we're going to end up in the courts when it comes to interpreting whatever it is that is the written constitution. You've all been providing a certain degree of caution about the advantages of a written constitution. Are there particular advantages to having an unwritten constitution, save the reservations about a written constitution? Jim, can we start with you there? Well, the UK constitutional tradition, insofar as the UK has one, has almost rather glorified in the notion that the UK constitution is unwritten, or at least uncodified. And the arguments that have been made for that are essentially arguments of flexibility, uh, that as circumstances change, it is possible for the constitutional arrangements, the allocation of powers and responsibilities to evolve to meet changing circumstances without a formal constitutional change process or, or without the kind of eruption that's necessary to have a completely fresh constitutional settlement. And there are some advantages in that. Uh, to take uh, an example from Spain, if one looks at the Spanish constitution, which was, of course, drawn up once the uh, government of General Franco was, was turned over and Spain became democratic, the Spanish constitution is absolutely clear that Spain is indissoluble. How, did that, how does that then face up to the difficulty of independence movements in Catalonia or elsewhere, where the constitutional ban on promoting uh, independence or separation for Catalonia has resulted uh, in politicians being sent to jail, which is no way to solve a constitutional problem. So the UK avoided that. Of course, it does depend on the politicians. I'm prepared to make exceptions. Uh, the UK has avoided that in the Scottish case because there was no rule about whether 
Scotland could secede or not, or whether a referendum could be held to determine that question. So the flexibility advantage is potentially quite a strong one. Lorna, would you like to follow on from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree and would echo everything really that Jim said there. Having a, an unwritten constitution allows the constitution to develop by way of conventions and judicial judgments, and it, it means that the constitution can be highly responsive to changes that are taking place in society. And, and I think that is a good thing overall. I mean, a good example is when we had uh, devolution to Scotland and we saw the development of the Sewell Convention, and that was part of mentioning some of the litigation that we had uh, recently, whereby Westminster can only legislate on matters that have been devolved to the Scottish Parliament if it obtains the Scottish Parliament's consent to that beforehand. So that's a good example of a situation that's adapting to the new constitutional arrangements by development of a convention. So this is the classic line that Dicey put in the late 19th century, that unwritten and flexible go together, and that written sometimes doesn't lead to any greater permanence because you get countries that have a regular replacement of their written constitutions. So you get flexible inflexibility or inflexible flexibility in that case. Don, would you like to add anything here? Uh, I agree with all this, but again, I doubt very much that written constitutions at the end of the day do actually or necessarily make things rigid and unyielding. So it's not just that the Supreme Court has spun out of the text things that aren't quite in it in our country. It's that they have repeatedly defied the straightforward commands of the text. So for one of many instances, the 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says, among other things, that states may not be sued by citizens of another state, right? And there was a background worry about state sovereignty there. The Supreme Court ruled that that means that states may not be sued by citizens of that very state, right? It's manifestly not what the text says. If you took a standard legal device and said when the text says one thing, it's implicitly excluding or ruling out another thing, it's against the will of the text. And the Supreme Court made no particularly interesting argument for why this had to be so. They just sort of nodded towards background norms about state sovereignty and did it anyway. So the flexibility was all there, right, for them to make the move they wanted to make in the face of the plain text that didn't authorize it. A generation ago, I should add, many legal academics and lawyers thought it was fine to talk about a living constitution in the United States and to say the great thing about the United States Supreme Court precedent is how it too flexibly yields to new circumstances. Recently, of course, we've had a heated argument about textualism, original understandings, popular sovereignty, and the demand that precedent, when it wanders away from the clear demands of the text, is illegitimate. But that has been, so far at least, a lot of smoke and not a lot of change in actual law. If, if contrary to what seems to be your, your share, largely shared views, the UK or elements of the UK were to go towards having a written constitution, how might it be drafted? Probably belongs to you first as a former civil servant, Jim. Well, I do think the challenge in drafting a codified, a comprehensive and codified constitution for the UK is, of course, the absence of a, what you might call a Philadelphia moment. 
a ground zero place from which this construction can begin, as in uh, Philadelphia or as in, let's say, the Federal Republic of Germany after the Second World War, or as it happened very frequently in France, when the old constitution wore out, the Republic was rebuilt on a very regular basis, which rather speaks to Don's point about flexibility and inflexibility. My own view is that the better approach for the UK would be to decide which bits it wished to codify and to codify those. Uh, and obviously the place to start is with those bits of the Constitution which are in some sense broken. If there are bits where the conventions haven't worked, where what was thought to be settled turned out not to be, and actually I do rather suspect that that question of prorogation that we mentioned earlier might be one of them, and another, in fact, be that convention that Lorna mentioned, the Seoul Convention, because the thing that we haven't satisfactorily codified in our territorial constitution is the boundary between the national parliament at Westminster and the national parliaments in uh, Scotland and Wales. And that uh, is, of course, because of that Dicean constitutional doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, which means we have overlapping legislative powers. So finding the bits that are broken and codifying them would be a sensible place to start. One process that's been suggested for that is the inevitable constitutional convention. The challenge with that is that it is potentially so large that it never gets anywhere. And building a consensus around every element of the constitution and starting afresh might be very challenging. So if a politician were to have asked me, and some did, back in the day, what should we do about this? My advice was always, I don't try and do it all, do it in bite-sized chunks. So in some ways that would follow the German example with other elements of law, where it's often said that German law is codified in the late 19th century, but it was actually only elements of it that are separately codified. Yes, there's a similar example in England, or less so in Scotland. Uh, England, for the English legal system for years, has been gradually codifying its criminal law so that there is almost no English common law left. It's all written down, sometimes accurately, sometimes not, I guess, uh, in statutes promoted by government in the end of the day, often on the advice of the law commissioners. So gradual codification, building the plane as it's flying along, isn't, a, isn't an unmanageable approach by any means. Don, is there anything from the US experience, save the starting at ground zero, that the UK might usefully learn? Yes, I think it's not a legal point so much as a political point. There's a huge appeal for many Americans, and I suppose many people elsewhere, of democratic legitimacy, right? Like, why should judges get to make this stuff up and spin it out? The people ought to speak on this. You can get almost any political theorist in the world to swoon over the category popular sovereignty or the originary powers of the people on the ground. Two things. One, Thomas Jefferson picked up the 17th century leveler slogan, the earth belongs to the living, and decided it wasn't just a rule about property, it was a rule about constitution making. And he feared that the older the constitution got, the more illegitimate it would get because it wasn't ratified by the living. And so he proposed to James Madison in a letter that the Constitution, there should be a new constitutional convention every generation. And he turned to the demography and he decided you get a new generation every 19 years. And Madison, true to form, wrote back and said politely, 
don't be an idiot, right? And then he talked about the special circumstances that enabled the Philadelphia Convention to do a halfway decent job and frankly looked forward to the possibility that the Constitution would be surrounded in later generations by great ancestral reverence, which of course is not the principle of democratic legitimacy. The second point on this from the American experience is ratification in many states was controversial. In Pennsylvania itself, the, the people opposed to the Constitution believed that the supporters were just going to ram a vote through with not enough time for popular discussion and debate. And in fact, that's what happened. And the proponents realized they did not quite have, they had a plurality, but they couldn't command a quorum. And they knew that the opponents were going to absent themselves from the chamber. So they simply tied some of them into their chairs and called the vote. So when one swoons about democratic legitimacy, and I get it, I'm all in favor of democratic legitimacy, it would be worth paying attention to where the warts might be, where the puzzles might be, where people might play quick and dirty. The American experience also has in it what many call super statutes. They're ordinary congressional legislation, but they're thought to be fundamental in some important way. A couple of examples, the law of setting up the Federal Reserve, our central bank, a different kind of uh, example, Title VII, federal legislation that's uh, bans certain kinds of discrimination in the workplace. As a formal matter, Congress can simply change any of those. It would be a big deal for them to change them, and people don't expect them to. So if you were to have in the UK a written constitution, at some point, something would have to be said about the hallowed old legal norm that Parliament is omnicompetent and can do absolutely whatever it wants. And something would have to be said about whether something in the Constitution was simply going to be set over and against whatever Parliament's current will was. Lorna, thinking both about the drafting and the mechanisms of interpretation, am I right in assuming that this would increase the, well, would necessarily rely on lawyers and judges in terms of the drafting and would increase the judicial role in the constitution if one has a written constitution? I think so far as the drafting is concerned, the likelihood would be that any constitution would be drafted by parliamentary council, which is a department of Whitehall, so um, in the civil service. But that would be drafting a constitution once there had been a consensus on the content and form of what that constitution would look like. And um, I... So, so there's a distinction then between composition and drafting, in a sense. Yes. Well, it, it, any parliamentary council will tell you that their draft is only as good as the instructions that they are given. And the instructions that they are given is the policy content, which they, the drafter then puts into to words and implements. So, I mean, the first step is to have uh, some sort of consensus on the content and form of that uh, written constitution. Of course, it could it could look all, all sorts of different ways. It might be, uh, as Jim mentioned, um, that there's some uh, attempt to, to look at the parts of the, co the constitution that are broken and trying to codify in some way conventions. I would have thought probably the natural approach would be to start with the things that we know that make up the constitution and that are not contentious so far as we know that we have constitutional settlements in terms of devolution legislation and we have the human rights act that uh, incorporates the european convention of human rights we will at some point have a settlement that determines the uk's relationship with europe 
So those are sort of things that we know about the constitution that we do have or we will have written down at some point. Those, to my mind, would be the, the sort of the, the building blocks of a written constitution. The conventions, I think, would be much harder to codify in any sort of clear and certain manner. But when it comes to how that would be interpreted or what the mechanisms would be for that being interpreted, it would need to be, whether it's a full codification or or not, it would need to be the courts that interpret the constitution. And where it's the constitution for the UK, it would have to be a UK court. So it would have to be the Supreme Court with ultimate authority on that. And of course, we have different legal jurisdictions within the UK. So we'd have to decide which courts within each separate legal jurisdiction had the authority to make any uh, any interpretation of the constitution. And ultimately, it would have to be, I think, for the Supreme Court to have binding uh, authority on that question. Jim, would you see, following from that, that were there a written constitution, or maybe even without a written constitution, there will be either necessity for a bigger constitutional role for the Supreme Court or a separation of the constitutional court from the Supreme Court with its some of its current functions? No, I, I don't think so. I don't wholly agree with, with Lorna here. I think the fact of the matter is that much of the UK constitution is written down in statute. And I think here particularly of the devolution settlements, but those other areas of legislation which are constitutional in tone that Lorna mentioned, uh, such as the the ECHR and whatever replaces our uh, European relationship, are to be found in Westminster statutes, uh, straightforward common acts of Parliament. And the courts understand very well that when they interpret those, they are interpreting constitutional legislation. They don't wear a different hat and they don't apply different standards of construction, uh, but they nevertheless have actually dealt really quite successfully, in my view, the Supreme Court, with the understanding of constitutional relationships. So there was a case in in the Supreme Court uh, in the UK about whether the powers of the Scottish Parliament were limited by standard administrative law procedures in the same way as the powers of a minister or the powers of a local authority. And a very subtle judgment uh, of the Supreme Court, principally drafted by the uh, present head of the Supreme Court, Lord Reid, indicated uh, a sophisticated and much more sophisticated uh, than other people's uh, constitutional understanding of the the nature uh, of the, in this case, the, the Scottish Parliament. So my own view is that as more stuff gets codified in the way devolution has been codified, the Supreme Court will fill that space really quite well. And I would not wish to separate that from their day job because it is the same kind of job and they are the people to do it, in my view. The aim of constitutions often is to balance different elements uh, within the political system, different groupings within the governance of the country. Lorna, you were talking about the inevitability of the courts having a role or having the role in the interpretation of the written constitution. Yet surely within a written constitution, it is likely that there will be some definition of the role of the courts. The absence, for example, of a firm definition of the role of the Supreme Court is a 
has created problems within the US Constitution. So how can one get round the difficulty of a written constitution that either lacks definition of the courts or gives definition of the courts, but has to be, def has to be defined and interpreted by the courts? I think with a written constitution, there would be, or one way of doing it certainly would be to have fundamental principles in there. You know, for example, the sovereignty of parliament, um, which no court could override. Um, you know, every court would have to be guided by. And, you know, the constitution itself could, of course, define the role of the courts in uh, interpreting the constitution, or, you know, on the basis of which it could make decisions. So I'm thinking, for example, you know, one way at the moment that the court, courts obviously scrutinise the decisions that are made by the government and parliament is by judicial review. And it might be that a written constitution sought to codify the grounds of judicial review, so, so put limits on the courts as to how far they could go in overriding uh, decisions that are made by government and parliament. So, for example, it might say that on judicial review, um, a court could not, for example, strike down a, an act of parliament. Or it might say that uh, it couldn't override a, or quash a government decision uh, on grounds of it being disproportionate alone. So I, I think there is a possibility that a written constitution could itself limit the role of the courts. Jim, if there's to be a written constitution, presumably it would have to go through parliament, and presumably the one parliamentary doctrine that every parliamentarian knows of is that parliament is sovereign within the UK constitution. And if that is true, does it not destroy the validity of any written constitution that might be created? Well, this is the classic logical puzzle uh, of uh, any kind of constitution. Seeing it as an element of a legal system, which also creates the legal system. It's the kind of Godel's paradox and things cannot create themselves. Constitutions are in the end political documents, uh, which set out in legal form the allocation of powers and responsibilities and the constraints and the processes about which power is exercised. The Constitution doesn't justify itself. That's the ground norm uh, that justifies it, something that legitimates it and creates it. And uh, at one extreme, if you like, you have the creation moment, as in the US Constitution. At the other extreme, you have the uh, UK approach, uh, which rather self-satisfiedly says, well, we've managed to evolve carefully to a, to, to a situation of some perfection, uh, and restarting would be uh, not only unwise, but impossible because of the doctrine of the sovereignty of parliament, which is clearly nonsense. It is not impossible to restart. It may be unwise. Uh, what is possible to do uh, is to keep maintaining the constitutional system we've got to get that balance between inflexibility of, of text written some hundreds of years before and regarded as somehow sacred and the complete flexibility which allows someone like Boris Johnson to think that he can make up the constitution in one afternoon because he interprets the sovereignty of parliament really to be the sovereignty of the government, an error which many ministers make. Uh, my own view is that there's somewhere on the spectrum that every constitutional system has to rest. Our problem is extreme flexibility, and that may be our problem, but extreme inflexibility is also a problem as well. Uh, as Don was saying, 
the conversation between Jefferson and Madison about rewriting the US Constitution every 19 years, at the other extreme uh, becomes a US today in which the possibility of any constitutional amendment is frankly inconceivable. Now, I think we have gone too far in the flexible area. I think we should codify in formal written form, which has to be an act of parliament, where we have no other formal written form. Those aspects of our constitution or our constitutional arrangement should have turned out to be problematic. And in future, some others will turn out to be problematic too, and they might be sorted out in the same way. One example, and I can think of, to be fair, only one recent example, which is a very obscure one, which is the power of parliament uh, to overturn treaties, uh, the so-called Ponsonby Rule, which was codified in statute about 20 years ago. That's suddenly very important today, and it's just as well we did it then, and we're not doing that one on the hoof as well. Don, we're thinking often of the courts as a way of enforcing a constitution in a way of depoliticizing or removing party political concerns and maneuvering from political affairs and constitutional affairs. But does the US experience suggest a written constitution leads to an inevitable politicization of at least some of the judicial arm? Inevitable, I don't know, uh, quite familiar and in some rough and ready way to be expected, sure. So, of course, we have bloodbaths. We're having another one right now about who gets on the court and who does not get on the court. And one can be polite and talk about, you know, the person's views about the proper approach to constitutional interpretation. But barely in the background, of course, are first order political questions like, will the court maintain a right to abortion? Yes or no. And people know that those are the stakes. And they have made our Supreme Court confirmation battles increasingly acrimonious, and they have made people increasingly cynical about the project of constitutional law. They have made people think the Supreme Court is just a super legislature, which since the 1930s, the Supreme Court has been plaintively claiming they are not. So is it inevitable? No, but is it a problem? You bet. Thank you all. That, as always, has been fascinating. And today was particularly interesting because I don't think people said what I was expecting them to say. Thank you for listening.